as the kids are heading out, if you would find the book of Mark in your Bibles, Mark chapter 3. We're going to return to the book of Mark. Uh, we're, what we're doing is kind of gradually working our way through the book of Mark um, as we head into Advent each year and as we head into Easter each year, we're going to be getting back into Mark during those two beats of the year until we work our way entirely through the book. And so we've been in Mark already and we've studied the first, um, the first two chapters and a little bit of chapter three started at last Christmas. We got back into it this spring and we took another break and now we're going to be back into it for the rest of this year. Mark is one of the biographies of Jesus. So it reads like a story. Uh, it's not like the epistles, the letters that just tell you things that are true. This just tells us what happened. It tells us things Jesus did, tells us things Jesus said, tells us how people reacted to Jesus. Uh, so just kind of keep that in mind as we read it. This is a biography of Jesus. But also keep in mind one of my favorite passages. And I'll read it to you to set the, the tone for our sermon. First Timothy chapter uh, 3 verses 16 and 17. All scripture, including the history of the Old Testament and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and the prophet, the prophetic books and these biographies and the letters and all scripture is breathed out by God. It's, this isn't just man's word. This is God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Reproof is um, God pointing out something that's wrong in you and then correction is him fixing it. So all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be, equip, uh, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as we read this passage in Mark, know that this is telling the story of what happened, but that from this story, we will profit. We will be taught. Probably many of us will be reproved. We'll see things in our hearts that shouldn't be there. Lord willing, we'll be corrected. So we'll be changed and we'll be trained and completed and equipped for whatever good works God may have in store for us. So let's pray together and ask for God's blessing over this time. Ask for him to speak to us before we read it. Would you bow with me once more? And as your head is bowed and your eyes are closed, I just invite you to pray just between you and the Lord now as you prepare your heart to hear his word. Father, we are about to read your word together. And in my heart, I tremble a little bit because I sense the awesome power that is within these words that you have invested in your word. And I feel very small and incapable of preaching it sufficiently. So we all come to you as, as one body now in all humility, recognizing that we are all needy in different ways this morning, even if we don't realize that we are. And if anything's going to happen 
during these few moments together, if anything's going to really happen in our hearts, it's going to be because you do it through your word that you promised would never go out without accomplishing your purposes for which you send it. So please, we open ourselves up. We come to you as submissively as we can, even though we're all imperfect. Please speak to us in all your power. Please do your work in our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying with me. So we're going to read Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 21 together this morning. And you can remain seated for it. I'd like to invite you to follow along in your Bible. The text is not going to be projected this morning, so you'll need to look on in your Bibles. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. This comes immediately after the passage I read at the beginning of the service. So right after the Pharisees and the Herodians, which were a political group, began to plot against Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed so many that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, and this is a hard word, I don't really know how to pronounce it, but I'm going to try, uh, Boanerges, that is, sons of, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. And that's kind of a a cliffhanger to leave on. And we're actually not even going to get that last bit of the passage. We're going to talk about that next week. So all scripture is profitable for teaching. So what can we learn from this passage, this little snippet of Jesus's life? I think there's a lot in here, but I'm only going to point out two things this morning to you. And the first one is very simple. Jesus drew a crowd. Jesus drew a crowd. It says Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed. We don't know how many the great crowd would be. It's at least hundreds, probably more like thousands. We do know where all they came from. It says in verse 8, end of verse 7 and verse 8, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Now I'm guessing, like me, you guys probably are not experts on the geography of ancient Israel. But basically those, if you were to look at the map, Jesus would be right here, 
And all these places were just all around. It was just sort of 360 surrounding where Jesus was. People were converging toward Jesus. So it would be, if Jesus were here, it would be like saying, great crowds came from Virginia and Maine and Ontario, Canada and Seattle, Washington and California and Mexico and South America. And they flew over from Africa and Europe and that's sort of the, everybody who has reasonable access to get toward Jesus, crowds are converging on him. He's drawing a huge, huge crowd. It says why they are coming as well. There in verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So I don't know if you remember what all we have seen that he was doing in Mark, but he was teaching with astounding authority. That was baffling everyone, even the established teachers of the day. He was healing people of all sorts of diseases. He was casting out demons. And he was getting into very public conflict with the religious authorities, the Pharisees. So all of this made him very, very compelling. And people wanted to see what's going on. He was a celebrity. He didn't have Twitter. He didn't have a publicist. TMZ hadn't yet formed. But people knew where he was, they knew his movements, and they were flocking to see Jesus Christ. He drew a huge crowd. But, and this is the second thing that we can learn from this passage, Jesus drew a crowd, but he focused on the called. So picture him there by the sea. He's got swarms and swarms of people converging toward him. Hundreds, I think maybe thousands. They're coming because they had heard he could heal people. So these were diseased people. So this wasn't, you know, people in their Sunday best. These were probably people who were bleeding and broken and hobbling. And probably they were having to carry one another. Converging toward Jesus to the point that he, he was pressed toward the sea. And so that they wouldn't crush him. He had to instruct his disciples to bring a boat that he could get in. So he could get away from the crowd. Lest they destroy him. Lest they crush him. Okay, so... There he was, he had his crowd, but he left the crowd. And then over in verse 13, it says, He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12. I don't know why I just did seven for 12. 12. He had thousands, he left thousands, and he called to himself 12. So he drew a crowd, but he focused in, if you could picture like a camera, which I know now our phones do it automatically, but you used to have to focus. He focused in, excluded the crowds on the few that he was going to call. Crowds don't equal success to Jesus at this point in his life. Now, I know it's hard for us to understand as modern American Christians, because to us, crowds equal success. Churches measure success by attendance. But Jesus' attendance there on the seaside was way bigger than his attendance up on the mountainside. He went from an attendance of thousands to an attendance of a dozen. But he did that willingly. Now, he loved the crowds. We see examples through the Gospels where he feeds them and he looks at the crowds with great compassion and he teaches the crowds often. He loves them, but he doesn't, he doesn't try to stir them up and they are not his goal. 
In fact, often he discourages the crowds. I think that's one of the reasons why he's always silencing everybody. And you saw the weird bit in here. You probably thought I was just going to skip it because I might not understand it. But there in verses um, 11 and 12, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. That's a weird bit of scripture. We've already seen him do that earlier in Mark. Some people say that he silences them because he doesn't want to give them any power over him to uh, like name him and identify him. I don't really quite think that's the case. I think they recognize Jesus as the son of God a little bit more quickly than the humans did. And he just didn't, that wasn't his goal at that point to trumpet that to everyone. He wasn't wanting, he wasn't trying to do a marketing blast. And even when he healed some humans, he didn't just silence the demons from, from going about and shouting about who he was. He even silenced some of the people that he healed and said, just, I love you, so I'm going to heal you, but just keep it between us for now. I don't want you going around telling everybody about this. And of course, they couldn't help it because they were so excited. I think he did that because he was trying to discourage the pandemonium of the crowds. He wasn't trying to gather crowds. He was trying to gather the called. Now, what I want to do with this passage is to say, therefore, large churches are evil and we are awesome. Last Sunday, we had, I think, 67. We were a few. So take that elevation with your crowds. Clearly, you are evil and we are righteous. Like in my flesh, I want to do that because it is, it is discouraging to me that, you know, we have over a hundred folks associated with us as a church claiming to be part of us. And rarely these days do we have more than like 80 here at one time. And I'm always wondering where, where is everybody? Where's our little crowd? But I, I don't think this passage gives us license to, uh, it doesn't give me license to soothe myself and say, well, I must be an awesome pastor. The smaller we get, the better. Because look at Jesus' preference for the called versus the crowd. But what we can do is we can look at the called and we can look at the crowd and we can see the contrast between the two and we can determine who we are in this. See, ultimately, it's the Lord that adds to the church. He could choose to do like he did at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and add to our number 3,000 who are saved, who are genuinely called. And we could just explode and have thousands of people. I mean, theoretically, it could happen. Um, we'll deal with that when, we, when that happens. But for now, let's stick in the passage. Let's not, let's not take license with it. Let's not jump to conclusions that aren't in it. But there are some true things that we can pull out of here that are going to help us to understand the difference between a crowd and the called. Now, I think it's going to help us to understand our own salvation and our own relationship with Jesus Christ. I think it will be instructive for us on how we might want to grow as a church and how to think about the fact that we are relatively small right now. Um, So I have four points of comparison that I've, I've pulled out of this passage that I want to talk to you about. Um, The first one is this one. The crowd is many. The called are few. 
Now, I, I don't believe that every large church is barking up the wrong tree because they have many people. Sometimes churches grow big because they're really making a lot of disciples, which is what we're supposed to be doing. That's not always the case, but often it is the case. So I'm, I'm not saying big church is evil. I'm just saying I believe that this passage shows a general truth that the crowds are many, but the called are few. In fact, I'm going to use the word most instead of many. And I'm going to say that most people who call themselves Christians are crowd and not called. Now, it'd be a lot safer to say many people who call themselves Christians are crowd and not called. But I think, I think it's safe to say, I'm going to try to show you in Scripture that it's safe to say that most people who call themselves Christians are crowd and not called. Now, that's dangerous to say because uh, if you're in politics, I bet you're, the people that help you try to say safe things and not dangerous things would discourage you from ever saying most, but to always say many whenever you're talking in terms of statistics. Because when you say most, you need proof. Because most means that you know about how many. Where if you say many, that's general and you can say that safely without needing proof. But I'm saying most people who call themselves Christians are crowd and not called. I think that we see here in Mark 3 um, an, a small example of a greater reality within the church. That the great crowds swarm, but he has only called the dozen. But I think there's some other passages that shed light on this. One of which is Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is Jesus teaching and he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. That word many is actually the same from the same root Greek word that is translated great in Mark chapter 3 for the great crowds, incidentally. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So picture in your mind, I'm picturing Highway 85 right when you get off of 485 like you're going to Concord Mills. Now that they've opened it up, have you guys driven that way since they've opened all that up? And it used to be all congested and now it feels like there's a dozen lanes going both directions. It feels huge and it's wonderful. So I'm picturing that, Highway 85, where it's, I don't even know how many lanes there actually are there. It just feels like a ton. With the way I used to drive to go to my grandmother's house, and it was an old, small country road, and the one bridge on the road was just a one-lane bridge. So you'd have to go, and you'd have to watch carefully to see if another car was coming, because if it was coming and they weren't stopping, you'd have to veer off into the creek in order not to hit them. So I'm picturing 85, and I'm picturing one-lane bridge to grandma's house. And Jesus is saying, there are two ways that people who are moving toward Christianity can go. One of those is this big 
12 lane highway like 85. One of those is a small, narrow way. Many, many people are going to go this way. Great crowds are going to go this way. But they're going to find out that this way actually leads to destruction. A few people are going to go this way and they're going to find life. Now, we might think that he's referring to humanity in general is on the big wide path. But I think he's talking about people who consider themselves believers. And the reason I think that is as he goes on with that teaching, in verses 15 through 20, he talks about the fruit of different types of people. But then in 21, he picks up that same idea and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. I think that's a continuation of his original thought about the, the broad way. And yes, I know my last name is Broadway. I don't think that's an omen or anything. I think as he's thinking about this broad way, this big highway, he's thinking about a lot of people who in the end are going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, on that day, many on this highway, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. I know you were hustling and you were doing all kinds of Christianly stuff, but you were on that broad way that was wrong that I tried to teach you about that Sunday when Matt was up there preaching. I was trying to tell you that's not the way. It's this narrow way that leads to life. You know, you've probably heard of the 80-20 rule. Have anybody ever heard that phrase, the 80-20 rule? It's uh, in its purest form, it means that in in most situations, 80% of the results are driven by 20% of the effects. That's sort of the scientific, that's the where it came from. Organizations use it and churches use that phrase a lot. And in church culture, what that phrase is, is that whenever in any given church, usually 80% of the ministry that happens, the work that gets done is done by about 20% of the people who call themselves members of the church. And I would say that's about right, you know, looking at Doolin's Grove. I, mean, I think that's kind of right, but it's real hard to define because what is the work? Because a lot of it's subtle and it's praying for one another and it's phone conversations. And, you know, there's a lot of work beyond just serving on the board or preaching and teaching. But you hear it, you hear it a lot if you read books about church health and books about how to pastor churches you hear this idea a lot, and I wonder if part of the reason why it seems to be that it's a smaller amount of the church that is really functioning as the body of Christ, and then there's a, a husk around that, that that really isn't functioning as the body of Christ, is because many in the church aren't Christians. Because I think the scripture teaches pretty plainly that the crowd is many, but the called are few. Now, I think I can say with confidence from the word that most who call themselves Christians, especially in a country where it's comfortable to call yourself a Christian. I know it's not as comfortable now as it was maybe 50 years ago to call yourself a Christian, but it's still relatively comfortable to call yourself a Christian compared to countries where you might be killed for it. 
I think most people that call themselves Christian are crowd and not called. And that is very sobering to me. So let's look a little further at the difference between the crowd and the called and try to discern our own hearts and our own church and see what the Lord's will is for us here. The second comparison I want to point out, the crowd is attracted by the doings of Christ. The called are attracted by the calling of Christ. The crowd is attracted by the doings of Christ. The called is attracted by the calling of Christ. Looking back at Mark chapter 3, the end of verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that Jesus was doing, they came to him. When the great crowd heard all that Jesus was doing, they came to him. And look down a few more verses after Jesus leaves the crowd and he goes up on the mountain. It says, he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired. So the people on the mountain, what did they hear? They actually heard Jesus speaking to them saying, come, come, I want you to be my disciple. I want you to be my apostle is the word he used here for these men. A crowd is always attracted to the doings of Christianity. But there's not that many that are attracted to the calling of Jesus Christ specifically. Why is it that it's so much easier to get people to a potluck than a prayer meeting? Why is it that, you know, as we try to come up with opportunities and facilitate different ministries and activities among the church. The closer the activity gets to just us and Jesus, the fewer people who are interested in it. Now, the more bells and whistles we can surround that with, the more people we can get to come. But the closer the activity to just the people of God and the word of God and the son of God, the fewer people who are interested in it. That's why there's a lot of pressure on pastors to, I'm going to use a quote that I quite honestly hate, but that I hear a lot. There's a lot of pressure on pastors to build excitement. Got to build up excitement. And usually what's meant by that is pump up the jam a little bit. Well, I know we have Jesus, but that's not enough. We, we need stuff. We need doings. We got to, that's crowd talk. That's not the talk of the called. You know, at Doolin's Grove, I love you guys. And I love the people who aren't with us. And I want the people who aren't with us to be with us. And so the knee-jerk reaction is, well, we need more doings. If we had some more doings, then they'd come. We'd get the crowds. And that's probably true. That's probably true. But the goal isn't crowds. The goal, the goal is the called. The answer is not more doings. In fact, well, for us, we have a lot of doings, actually. It's just nobody comes to much <laughs> to a lot of it. I mean, really. We have a lot of, of goings on. And I know there's a billion reasons for that. And I'm not trying to be condemning because I know, I know most of you guys. I know a lot of the specific reasonings. I know when people are sick. I know when people are out of town. I know when people are, are crushed under the weight of their callings with family and work to serve there. I mean, I know there's 
there's more reasons than just, I don't love Jesus to not come to uh, crisis assistance ministry or men's breakfast. I know it's not that simplistic, but I'm saying in general, the answer is not ever more doings. It's always more Jesus. And you know, if you look, the disciples that he called, there's no indicator that any of those 12 came from that crowd. He had a pool of thousands of people there. And because sometimes we can think, well, if we could just get the crowd, then from the crowd, we'd get the called. But you see, what you bring people with is what you keep people with. So if we get the crowd with the event, when the event is done, the crowd is done. And I see no indicator that any of these called came from that crowd. In fact, most of these guys that we know where they came from, Jesus called them while they were at work. He was walking by the sea and he saw them out fishing. He said, hey, come follow me. And they said, okay. (laughs) They just dropped their nets and followed him. It's hard to believe that that could work, that someone could just be asked to follow Jesus and that they would do it. Surely we need more than just the gospel of Jesus Christ. Surely we need something more than that. He walks by Matthew at the tax booth and says, hey, follow me. Matthew's got all his money sitting there. Okay. (laughs) He follows Jesus. Do people still really just follow Jesus? Does that, does it still happen? I, I believe it does. But I believe the crowds are much more and I believe it's few. It's not about crowds and doings. It's about moving toward Jesus. It's about praying, calling out to the Lord to add to our number those who are being saved. Because, you know, you might think about Acts chapter 2 and think, well, there were crowds. There were 3,000. 3,000 people. But think about what drew them and then what happened to them right after that 3,000 people exploded on the scene. I can't even find Acts. I'm so excited. Flipping around by Revelation looking for Acts. The only thing that brought that crowd about was Peter preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit empowering people to hear it and believe it. And then immediately after that crowd came to Christ, they, in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, devoted themselves to the teaching and the fellowship and breaking bread and prayers. And then you read the rest of the chapter. We studied that last year about the same time. They were, just, they were just being the church. And it wasn't the apostles trying to organize events to keep the church happy. The gospel got in there, transformed his people, 3,000 people in one moment. And they started being the church together. So the crowd is attracted by the doings of Christ. The called are attracted by the calling of Christ. The voice of Jesus himself calling them out. A third observation. The crowd is attracted by its desire. The called are attracted by Jesus' desire. Okay? Why was the crowd pressing so hard onto Jesus that he might have been crushed and killed if he couldn't escape onto the boat. Well, it says in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 10. Well, I'll read verse 9 as well. And Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed so many that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So the people were there because they were diseased and they knew that Jesus could heal diseases and they desired to be healed. So they were there for the same reason you go to the doctor. 
You don't go to the doctor to worship the doctor and to obey the doctor as your Lord. You go to the doctor to be healed. And that's good. And it's good to go to Jesus to be healed because he is the healer. But there's more to it than that. Look at verse 13. Why did the called go to Jesus? He went up on the mountain and he called to them those whom he desired. See, for the crowds, it's initiated by their desire for, for whatever it might be that they can get from the experience or from, the, from, the, from Christ. The called are initiated by Jesus' desire for them. You remember the footage, I think maybe it was last year or the year before, where the morning after Thanksgiving sales were so extreme that people were literally trampled to death as the crowds forced their way into Walmart to get the deals on whatever they were trying to buy. You remember, did you guys see the footage of that on the news? That's sort of what these crowds would have looked like after Thanksgiving morning Walmart sales crowd is what Jesus had on his hands here. He left that pandemonium to call to himself those whom he desired, more like a, uh, a captain of a team picking his team. I think we need to think about our experience of Christianity and ask ourselves the question, is it driven more by our desires or is it driven more by his desires? Are we the initiating desire, asking, begging him to do our desire or is he the initiating desire, doing things with us that we maybe didn't ever plan? Yeah, I doubt these disciples had planned that day that they were going to be appointed as the 12 apostles. Now, one mark of being one of the called is that Jesus does call on you and imposes his desire upon you. And sometimes it's not the same as your desire, but you do it because you know he is wise and good and he loves you. And it turns out better than you could have imagined. Maybe harder, but better. We need to ask ourselves if that's happening in our experience with him, because if it's not, that's a red flag that we might be part of the crowd. You know, I bet the people in the crowd were praying people, please heal me. That's not the same as being one of the called people where Jesus says, you, you come to me. I might heal you, I might not, but I have intentions for you. I have a desire for you. And the last observation I'm going to point out, the crowd wants blessings, the called are appointed. The crowd wants blessings, the called are appointed. Now, it's not bad to want blessings from God. God is good and we're his kids and he loves to bless us. And he is the source of any blessing we're ever going to receive. It's not bad, but it's not all. The crowd just wanted to touch him. Be healed, yes, go on about life. The called, on the other hand, are taken by Jesus out of their life and given a whole new, different life and a new calling and appointed to ministry. He draws them near and he sends them out. Did you read what he told them? Back to verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Apostle just means sent one. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12 and it names all the 12 guys. 
the called, I mean, the, the crowd rightly goes to God for blessing. But the called are brought near to Jesus and commissioned for ministry to go out and be blessings. And I think it's safe to say scripturally, and you judge this yourselves with your Bibles open if this is right, but I think it's safe to say that all called are commissioned. There is not a Christian who was called to Jesus Christ as a Christian who was not also commissioned into ministry. Now, you weren't all called to be apostles, but he gave to the church more than just apostles. He also gave teachers. I'll read it to you. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 27 and 28. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He's speaking to the called here. And God has appointed in the church first apostles. We saw that. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then miracles. Then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And he goes on to talk about how we all have different parts In this body, we, all who are called, are commissioned into ministry. If you are a Christian, you've been gifted. You've been brought near to Jesus Christ and gifted through the Holy Spirit to go out. And maybe some of you should be preaching and some of you should be teaching and some of you should be administrating and some of you should be going to where the sick are and praying for healing. But think about your experience of Christianity. Is it marked by... Seeking blessing or is it marked by being brought in and cleaned up and transformed and sent out into ministry in some form or another? The crowd is many and the called are few. The crowd is attracted by the doings of Christ. The called are attracted by the calling of Christ. The crowd is attracted by its desire. The called are attracted by Jesus' desire. The crowd wants blessings. The called are appointed. You know, it can often seem when preaching a sermon like this, I'm preaching to the choir. Y'all are the ones who are here, you know, week in and week out. But maybe for us, it's a reminder to listen for his voice and all the noise. Listen to his call. God so loved you that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And not just to bless you, but to call you to himself and to gift you and send you back out as a light into the dark world like we've been talking about the last several weeks. Hear his call, listen, and respond to it in obedience. And may none of us who call ourselves Doolin's Grove, may none of us be the crowd. May we all be the called. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. I know that not any one of us deserves to be called to your son, to be brought near to him. Not a single one of us deserves to be appointed as a minister, as a part of the body of Christ. And I praise you that it's based on our faith in his death on our behalf. And that you're not only merciful, you don't just not crush us and condemn us, but that you're gracious and you allow us to be your people. Lord, help us to think clearly here. 
And please add to our number those who are being saved. Please add to our number the called. And may we hear your call and respond to your call and live as the called in obedience to the calling you've put on our lives to trust and follow Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.